Welcome to Famous People You've Never Heard Of, the podcast brought to you by Blue Fire Theatre Company. Each week, Lottie, Linda or Steve will guide you through the centuries to shine the spotlight once again on entertainers the world has forgotten. Thank you so much for joining us as we chat to our fabulous guests and find out more about these forgotten superstars of history. If you enjoy the podcast, do please rate, review and most importantly, subscribe so that you never miss an episode and more people find out about us. And now, let us delay no longer in introducing you to a famous person you've never heard of. So welcome to today's episode of Famous People You've Never Heard Of. This is a bit of a first for us. It is the first in a trilogy of episodes all about one subject. Um, The second in the trilogy is our audio drama for the season, The Diary of a Nobody. So I am very pleased to welcome to the Zoom room today the wonderful Stephen Wade, who is the author of the biography of the author of the book on which the play was based. Work that one out over a cup of tea. Um, Stephen, welcome. Lovely to see you. Hello, it's a pleasure. Um, Now, are you able just to give us a little bit of background about you and what you do and what your interest in uh, marvellous George Grossmith is, because it's he who we are here to talk about today? Of course I can, yes. I think probably, um, if any any readers know me at all, it will be largely through crime crime history and um, crime writing generally, I think. Uh, That tends to be my main main identity as a writer, if you like. But um, I've always been uh, something of an all-rounder. And I I was saying the other day that as a writer, I'm difficult to brand and to define. Uh, I I write in so many genres. But um, I've always loved comedy and humour and comics and stand-ups. And um, I like the way that, uh, in George Grossmith's case, he became so much more. You know, I mean, yes, great Gilbert and Sullivan star, but he became so much more. And I've always been drawn to, I suppose, people <laughs> similar to myself, <laughs> people that will um, have, a, have a go at anything, you know, if they've got the interest. So that's mainly what I do. I also, um, I also write a lot of journalism. Um, I, I write a column. If anybody, any Yorkshire people listening might know me through the Dalesman magazine, uh, I write a column there called Yorkshire Delight. Um, I write for sometimes for Country Life, um, This England. So, you know, I love, um, I love writing stories that excite me and interest me. And when, when the chance to write about George came along, uh, it, it, that was an absolute pleasure to, uh, to find out about the man behind all the pictures that you see in the history of theatre books. I knew of George Grossmith through the Gilbert and Sullivan connection, but it mm. took me a long time to realise that he'd actually written the book as well, which has always been one of my favourites. I actually think it was right. the same George Grossmith. was uh, yes. a bit of a revelation. Um, but he did so much more as well, didn't he? I think so. You know, I think with... I don't know what other, other biographers would think, but I, I've always I've done a few biographies, and um, that you feel a certain kinship with you, you're sympathetic towards them. Um, you kind of understand their mindset a little bit. Um, I've written about Conan Doyle, for instance, um, and also someone else that nobody will ever have heard of, uh, Lottie, 
uh, but should have done. <laughs> a man called Harry De Vint, um, traveller, writer, bon viveur. Uh, so not that I'm a, a tra- <laughs> particularly a traveller or a bon viveur, but it, it's, more, it's more the mindset. And you know what happened? This is a really peculiar thing I've always found, that you're interested in a person. They're from years and years ago. Um, and strangely, almost invariably, something crops up in their life that uh, is very close to your own interests. And you hadn't known it when you set out, you know. Uh, when I wrote about Harry DeVint, um, I had no idea that he'd been a prison governor. And um, I, I've, um, I've worked as a, oh, that's one thing I didn't tell you about myself, isn't it? That I, uh, I also worked um, as a writer in residence in, uh, in a number of prisons. But I found out in the middle of my biography that Harry DeVint w- was a prison governor uh, during the Great War. So it's strange how these things crop up. When I set out writing about George, um, initially I had no idea that he'd been a, a Bow Street crime reporter. Another thing I didn't know at the start, but then I really felt um, a closeness to him in that particular area of life he had to... Um, he had to be involved in because he, he didn't have any choice because his dad, um, George Grossmith the first, <laughs> his very interesting father, um, had him stand in for him when he had to be, he was away. Gro- George Grossmith the first, if we could call him, um, couldn't do the reporting. He was a regular Times reporter, um, and his friend who filled in usually couldn't do it either. So George was just brought in to do it. You know, with no experience whatsoever, writing crime reports for the Times from Bow Street. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's that kind of, it's a mixture of those two things. I suppose every biographer would say this happens, that you, uh, something crops up that doesn't entirely surprise you because they are they are like you, in, or they have your view of the world in some respects. But then that mixes with um, some wonderful surprises. So in George's case, it was that he was a crime reporter. Um, and I was absolutely stunned to learn that he had to write about 13 copies. Uh, you know, the reports were all in um, uh, something similar to what we would think of as sheet, uh, duplicate sheets. But the Victorians had these awful, sticky, gummy, primitive, pre-Xerox type things. So here was George having to write... Uh, a dozen copies all in one, you know, pressing on very hard of these crime reports. Uh, so, yet yeah, once again, uh, I felt a kinship with him. I'd been an office worker for many years. <laughs> I, I, you know, I started off as an office boy and uh, my first job was wearing, wearing clerking. And so, again, I felt this closeness to George. I love the guy. Um, you know, with his, I'd love to have met him. I, um I felt a real shiver when I went to the house where he died, you know. Something that I think kind of confused me when, when mm. I've been sort of doing my background reading is all the Georges. So there's oh, like yes. George, George the First, George Senior, yes. then there's George, and then there's George the Son. That's and right. They all did similar things career-wise, didn't they? I mean, how they confusing did. is that? Oh, I know. I had to, in the book, as you know, I had to refer to him, George first, George second, George third. George himself, of course, was known as Gigi to most people. But, yes, it is confusing. And do you know what? You could you could write a biography of each one. Um, I mean, his father was, uh, he was a Reading man, he was born in Reading. And um, 
was a, was a, a, a jack of all trades, really, on the stage and in um, popular literature, you know, things like penny readings he was involved in. Also a mason, by the way. Masonry was very strong through the family. And he was a wonderful guy, you know, if you imagine him as a dad. I mean, on one occasion, George, Gigi, let's call him Gigi. His gets very confused. Let's call him Gigi. Um, and his brother, Whedon, almost set fire to the um, this uh, sort of, well, it was they made it into a breakfast room. It was originally a sort of a, a bit of an adjunct to the house. Um, and George and we, Gigi and Whedon were experimenting with chemicals. Um, they virtually um, almost set fire to the ceiling, you know, and um, other things, other little stories. He clearly loved his dad. You can imagine George the First walking into that room, can't you, with the, the ceiling dissolving and putrid smoke all through the room. Uh, but they were forgiven. As far as I know, no beatings occurred. So as a Victorian paterfamilias, he was a really nice, genial, lovable one, sometimes more like their brother. They used to go biking together, the three of them. Oh, there was a, there was a, there was a sister, by the way, Emily, and she, um, nothing's really known. She died, and, um, you know, Emily doesn't, doesn't really get a mention. George doesn't mention her in his own um, his, uh, his own memoirs, no. So um, we think of George and Whedon, and of course, right up to the book, it's George and Whedon. But there was, not for long, but there was little Emily. Oh. And um, and the dad, well, he was just, everybody loved him, you know. He, he was a, a clubbable guy, uh, the Savage Club, uh, George I. Uh, do you know, I don't know if people know, they probably don't know the story of George I's death, actually. George I died in the Savage Club, place he loved. Um, there was, back at the um, Grossmith home, not long afterwards, there was a knock at the door and one of the Savage Club servants, servants was at the door and he had um, a folded uh, napkin. And he said to Emmeline, or Rosa, as she was usually called, uh, Mrs. Grossmith, um, um, you know, your husband has passed on um, but uh, we we did uh, retrieve some sausages, and uh, in retrieving these sausages, which you should have, um, unfortunately the napkin was sullied, uh, and they wanted the cost of the. <laughs> they you wanted are the cost. Joking. They wanted the cost of laundry for the bloody. <laughs> and that's how she napkin. found out her husband had died. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is outrageous. Talk about insensitive times, eh? <laughs> right, but I mean, but on the pleasant side, you know, George was clearly absolute heart and soul of the part. George the uh, first of the party, and this was passed on to Gigi. And did did George the first? Um, he was involved in in the amateur dramatics, wasn't he? The, yes, they all they, they all, all did that. Um, yes, I mean they 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 were together. Um, even in even pre-teens, they would all just mess about together. And then by the time doing anything, you know, monologues, uh, George was learning piano, I remember, at the age of five, six, um, from his school teacher in um, um, Massingham House, uh, the, uh, some sisters called Hay. Uh, one of the Hay sisters taught him piano initially. So he was he was doing, even at 
around about nine and ten, George was doing his first with his dad and his brother later on, um, you know, doing little pastiches and um, and burlesques and all the things that were on the London theatres at the time. They were doing their own version of them. It's incredible, isn't it? They did um they did a, a sort of spoof of Hamlet when George was in his early teens. That would be, I think. And they all together, the, the dad again played his part of a spoof of Hamlet, which seems to have, for the you know for the sort of big family parties, it seemed to have defined what they had, what talent they had amongst them, you know. Um, and this obviously was gradually transferred into George the First's world uh, of very, I would say, the world of theatre. Well, it sort of almost the world of theatre. It was more, with George the First, it was more often Masonic venues, uh, you know, clubs and pubs and penny readings and any, anywhere that would have him, really, particularly with um, with his Dickens uh, readings. George the First was known most by the public for his, his uh, Dickens readings, which, of course, he took from Dickens himself. He, he transferred with his dad's encouragement. It, again, it was George the First, really. Oh, and also... He had an uncle who was um, uh, very famous on the stage. Uh, he was known as the Young Roscius, um, G- um, George the First's brother, Robert, uh, the Young Roscius. And uh, he was really famous in the um, Regency times, you know. So uh, it wasn't difficult to get a spot uh, in, a, in a, a minor... Well, before the operettas... There were these other places that um, Gigi first really uh, used before he, uh, in the transition, if you like, between parties, um, local entertainments, backing up his dad uh, in in his regular spots. And the transition was um, with um, this couple called the German Reeds. And um, there was a place called the Gallery of Illustration, which was on Regent Street. And that was the uh, that was the first step, really, for lots and lots of performers, lots of the um, friends in Gigi's circle as he was growing up. You know, pre Gilbert and Sullivan, they um, they'd all know the Gallery of Illustration, and then the little um, sort of sidelight shows, spin-off shows in small venues as well. Uh, so the bookings came, you know, fast and regular and. Uh, they soon began to earn, not huge amounts, but and began to be known. So Gigi was spotted, you know, he was spotted by some producers on the, admittedly, they were, I suppose we call them the fringe. Um, and uh, Gigi just had, you know, he had that, um, he had that factor X, you know. Um, he made friends, he, um, he spread good feeling wherever he went. You know, you wanted George to do your family do. And uh, later on, he was to really go to town on that. You know, when he was famous, he was still wanted by that. And he was even, you know, he he, um, he did the same piano songs and routines and mimicry and so on for um, for the really wealthy set. You know, we're talking Mayfair. I was interested in in your book that there are a few sort of not exact comparisons, but um, Oscar Wilde is mentioned in the mm. in the same breath almost, and mm. and I, I can kind of see that you know going around to the entertaining the gentry and being part of the social set and and whatever in with the in crowd. Yes, We're yes, I think similar. he. Was, 
I think there was I think there was a certain charisma about him. Um, he might not have had the bon mot uh, particularly, or if he did, it wasn't logged. <laughs> but he he had that you know that peculiar charm, the sort of thing that that we found um, I suppose in our time in those you know the the wits on TV who can make anything funny. Mm. You know I, I think he had that quality, um, the sort of thing we see on our on our TV comics. He had that um, that ready wit. Uh, he could always respond. You know, he could cap something. It's interesting, actually, that when 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 he was just a little kid, even one of his teachers said it's a sort of famous quote about George. Um, he is going to be a clown. So, so you know, he must have been from the start one of those kids who who just act the fool and copy people's voices and make up little silly ditties. Um, but of course, fate was very kind to him, wasn't it? Because he got the famous letter. Have you ever thought about going on the stage? <laughs> <laughs> you know, then Gilbert and Sullivan called. <laughs> well, do you know what? There are very few real overnight talents out there. Mm. Yeah, the big overnight yeah. successes. Um, it's usually 10, 20 years of hard work before someone recognises you overnight. So. Yes, I yeah, agree. Give him the credit where it's due, yeah. I think. <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly him, isn't it? And that was his dad's ethos as well. Because mm. he was in a, he was in a, you know, when you write a biography, you discover lots of other people. Everybody knows this, don't they? But I'm saying it anyway. Mm. You discover lots of other people. You think, oh, God, he's, you know, he's interesting. She's interesting. Yeah. And uh, I got so intrigued by the circle around him that I, uh, I'm not particularly wealthy, but I I, I did get my, my wallet out for uh a few um, a few original documents. You know, I bought some letters um, by some of these characters that I, I was smitten with. A wonderful guy called Connie Grain, who was one of uh, George's... Great name, that, isn't it? Oh, it's a great <laughs> name, isn't it? <laughs> Connie Grain. He was a, a, a very bulky, large-sized lawyer, would you believe, who liked singing and being being silly. And uh, yeah, I bought a couple of his uh, of Connie Grain's letters from the uh, from the wonderfully named Beefsteak Club, you know, where he was writing to people who wanted him to come and do a turn in their neck of the woods. You know, um, <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. He's he's talking mostly about trains. <laughs> if I get such and such from such and such, will I be there for so and so, and will I have time to eat? Brilliant. <laughs> That's Connie Grain, and he he loved George. They were absolute best pals, and of course they had the they had the law in common. You know, George knew had learned a lot about the law through his reporting, and Connie Grain was a lawyer, so they had plenty to talk about. And I imagined them in the Beefsteak Club. You know, I could just wouldn't you just love to be a fly on the wall at one of these one of these Victorian clubs when they get together with George at the piano? Oh, wonderful! wonderful. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've been for major vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fight historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too, with matters mathematical. I understand equations from the simple and quadratical. And Papa, I know your theorem. I am teeming with a lot of news. A lot of news. What rhymes with that? Got it! With many cheerful facts about the square, the hypotenuse. Many cheerful facts about the square, the hypotenuse. Many cheerful facts about the square, the hypotenuse. Many cheerful facts about the square, the hypotenuse.
very good at interbellum differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and the magics. Short of magic vegetable, animal and mineral, I am the very model of a proper meaty Fame struck again. George the writer, didn't it? Yeah. Which, for which he's better known, I think. Well, he's, he, you said that, didn't you? It's true. He's far better known. I think that the book is really well known. Um, mm. And it it's not often, well, I certainly didn't make the, the connection, you know, but I, I, mm. I love the fact that I, I knew who George Grossmith was from Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, yeah. But... You know, I'd, just not making that connection of his, you know, he's now written that fantastic book as well. That's, that's brilliant. So d- yes. did he actually, he created most of those comic baritone roles, didn't he, for GNS? Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think when you, you can see this when you look at the, the engravings and the sketches and things, you can see just how, you know, they were as good as uh, Lloyd Webber. They had that talent uh for you know to get their man get their woman and you can see even though though you will never ever uh unless we do we do travel back in time actually see him on that you know as wellington wells in the sorcerer that first time he trod the stage for them the the images we have that, that's all we've got really the the pictures and so on and he's physically absolutely wonderful you can see the humor in his body and so when you look, and, the, and there aren't very memorable songs in The Sorcerer. There's, there's really only one that you'd come out tapping your feet and humming. And, um, and it's a silly idea, but, I mean, they wanted silly ideas of love potions. I mean, that always, that always brings a laugh or two. <laughs> um, and he was, you know, physically absolutely perfect. And, um, of course, he was, when, um, when, when they realised what they'd got, and then they really took off, you know, with, particularly with, say, Pinafore, where he could go to town with so many great songs. Um, that physicality was obvi- obviously part of what sold, you know, what they had. And so um, when they looked around uh, and thought, well, you know, if George is poorly, which he was, on one memorable occasion, he was very, very ill, uh, you know, who's who's going to stand in? Um, so it's, it's, it's clear they knew they had really really a huge asset there that they should write for i mean i always think the really telling thing about this is that um sullivan managed to um, maintain his interest you know he wanted to go and write symphonies didn't he yes um why am i writing this trivial stuff with you and um i think george was one of the reasons why he carried on because um you know it was a challenge he must have relished the challenge of um equaling the humour of the lyrics, you know, what what can my music do here that will add to the um, flush of pleasure people are going to have as they as they walk out or you know at an interval or something, and uh, you know the you can see, can't you, in the overture, what you can hear in the overtures, just how good he was at uh, those those amusing little um, lodging your head melodies uh that, that were doing exactly what george was doing you know he he was lodging in their heads as well they wanted more and more and more and more and one thing i learned that i, I couldn't believe i thought well you know where did he get this energy from is that he also wrote at the beginning didn't he Gigi? um he, he was involved in the little um 
supporting pieces, the little um, um, sketches and closing numbers and things like that. He did all these extra things that he didn't really have done. So he was a force to be reckoned with. You know, I'm not surprised that he he, he eventually burned out and, um, you know, uh, thinks, well, I've had enough. No. Uh, I'd like to go back to my piano, please. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I think as well with those, um, the, the Gilbert and Sullivan things, and you were saying mm. about looking at the pictures and you, you can, you can see the energy and you can see, mm. you know, what physical actuary was. But as well, yeah. if you look at him, the, the pictures of him in, in the Sorcerer, as opposed to the pictures of him in the Mikado, and it's not mm. just the makeup. He looks totally different in all of them. Yes, he does. So you can see <laughs> yeah. he's just embodying every yeah. character from the inside out, especially when you sort of think of in, in terms of the Mikado, because the, the makeup, you know, credit to them, it's not because it was hardly the most politically correct of times, but no. they didn't go over the top with that That's right. to make him actually look Japanese. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So it, yes, you he, know, just... It's, he just looked <clears throat> like a different character. He does. He does. I think he had that quality um, that you find in the comics of his time. He'd learned a lot, hadn't he? Um, not just the Dan Linos, but the the other ones that nobody ever knows. This is why your your podcast <laughs> should go on from strength to strength. Please bring back these other comics. <laughs> there are so bring many back of these them. Other, Oh, all these comics. And we've got pictures Some from the, was it John Mander, that big collection of pictures? And... Um, yeah, he was like that. You can see when you compare him with the others. Was it Albert Chevalier? I think he was yes, one. Um, yeah. There were lots of them, weren't there? And you can think there's a similarity. It's this little man, this rubbery frame who can become anything. And there's the, uh, it doesn't shy away, the Mikado, from being as politically... Um, astute as all of their their other works either i mean what the people yeah. they're poking fun at are not the japanese it's the british mm. establishment well they yes. just dress them up in kimonos so <laughs> yes, you know. absolutely yeah i mean really in the end that's what the audience would all be laughing at isn't it i mean especially in uh uh Garnet Wolseley, uh modern major general is the one that probably most people generally if you're not a, a gns fan you'd be familiar with that so they laughed at the modern major general, while at the same time, you know, they had huge respect for the the guy being parodied. But do they have um, as much respect for W. H. Smith? No, he was the subject of Sir Joseph Porter, wasn't he? No, <laughs> no, I think, no. I think most most instances they were having fun at their expense, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, I'm picking out a good, a good chap. What they see as a good chap, but um, yeah, they they. I mean, this was deep, deep in Gilbert, wasn't it? He'd um, he, he'd always been um, a bit like spitting image. I think of spitting image in some ways. Uh, he'd always been into um, caricature. Uh, I love his little sketches in the um, poems, you know, and uh, when his little lyrics and songs. And even when George started uh, writing, they did the same thing. Uh, in Punch, they did a very, very similar thing. They made um, in the actual um, original Diary of a Nobody in, in Punch before it was a book. They put these Frank Bernand. It was the editor, and he was a great supporter of Frank Bernand. He really liked Gigi and helped him really. Probably without Frank Bernand, we may maybe would not have had a Diary of a Nobody. And uh, it started in Punch, 
with these little, you know, tiny, tiny print in punch as well, with these little miniature caricatures, the size of a postage stamp. And, um, you know, that's that's very much, uh, they were echoing, you know, Gilbert's approach, really, to... Um, to copy in a little, a little, almost like a childish point of view, or, or his famous word, a topsy turvy point of view, and make you see a spitting image does really make you see one particular quality that that you want to, you're supposed to laugh at, and of course the patter patter songs are are exactly that. They they, you know, you you when you see them now, uh, it's usually one. Uh, there's got to be one thing that everybody's going to find funny and then all the other things follow, don't they? Mm. I've had no theatre experience, so I'm speaking like an amateur here, uh, Lottie, I'm afraid. So I'm I'm speaking as a theatre-goer, not as anybody. Well, there you are. And you know what? (laughs) They're the people that pay the wages, so they are the people we please. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I know there must be a lot more to it. You know, like I've always been aware that if I... Um, you know, a person with a lot of experience of theatre uh, would write about George Grossmith. It would be a very different biography to mine. I come from a sort of literary critic background. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny, it's interesting, isn't it? You're always aware in writing about a person that you're going to be biased. It's impossible to be anything else. And um, I, I was always aware that I thought, you know, I wish I knew more about practical theatre. Uh, I would understand what's going on more, you know. But if you're writing from your perspective, you don't don't need to really, do you? Um, no, I, I, no, I never felt the need to. No, I think it was later when I when I I think actually what it was, I think it's when I'd seen um, Simon Butteris um, do lots of George roles. Um, I saw him at the GNS Festival in Harrogate a couple of times, and he was so good. And, you know, you thought, George, whenever you looked at him, you were thinking GT. And uh, I think it's then that I thought, you know, when the book was done anyway, so it's too late to do anything else. Um, thought, oh, you know, I wish I'd been able to interview Simon Butteris when I was working on this. But then he went anyway, didn't he, Simon? He went and did his own uh, George drama. I'm sort of thinking in terms of people having different perspectives. As you say, everyone's going to mm. be biased. Yeah. Did you see... The Mike Lee film Topsy Turvy. I hadn't seen it. Uh, no, I, I, you know, I only saw that film. It would have been maybe two years ago. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, which again, it was fantastic, wasn't it? It really it's brilliant film. Yeah, um, yeah. Interesting portrayal of George. Yes, I know. Uh, there is um the first. Well, I don't know if it's the very first, but Hesketh Pearson's biography of Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, a long, long time ago, I can't even remember the date it was put. It must have been ooh, 1920s or something. It came out in a Penguin paperback. And he kind of, when you read that, you think he's dodging something here that um, the readers at the time didn't really want to know. <laughs> but on Topsy Turvy, we had it, didn't we? Full-blooded. Full-blooded. <laughs> modern. Uh, this is what it was really like. Mm. And, you know, you have to you have to go along with that, don't you? Although... I dodged it. Um, I didn't really feel, you know, that to add um, any other, you know, more unpleasant sides. I wanted to keep it cheery, yeah. to be honest, um, because, yes, uh, he probably, along with virtually everybody else, 
had certain substances in his body. Um, everybody seemed to do, didn't they? Even arsenic back then. Um, arsenic was quite trendy, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. So God only knows what was in Gigi's body. Well, you could do something like a group biography, couldn't you, from a very modern perspective. Take a bunch of Victorian performers, look at their, right about their circle, if you like. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to, you could bring in this more seedy, unpleasant, very melancholy side to it all. Uh, I just asked myself why, you know, because um, what we want to know is we want to know what it is that really cheers you up, you know, kept people coming back. No, I, I, and the, the audience wouldn't have known any of that stuff. Um, no. No. And I, I think you, the, the reason I mentioned it is because I've I've got this big thing about nothing ever really changing. You know, I, I, I do a lot of musical stuff, um, and that world was not at all old fashioned and cosy. It was very dark and cutting mm. edge and satirical and all of that stuff. And I think you know that the cult of celebrity hasn't changed. Right. So yes. what George was doing then someone else is doing now but we just read about it in the in the tabloids now and hello magazine whereas mm. you know it's probably under the radar then absolutely you can really see the difference if you compare Gigi with his son George uh, III <laughs> uh, who was linked to the gaiety <clears throat> you can see that difference that you've just described in 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 uh, the sort of celebrities that were in uh, George III's world. Um, there's a wonderful book. It must have been out of print a long time. I have a copy here behind me somewhere. And it's all about George III at the Gaiety. And what it does, it put, must have been published about 1910. It's on this high shelf above me. <laughs> so I'm not going to go. I'm not going to drop the tablet. So cool. um, the point I'm making is, it's if you look at it, it's, I think it's called something like um, George Grossmith at the Gaiety. And it's full of photographs of the whole Grossmith family, but more importantly, of the stars, particularly the women stars. And it's exactly as you've just said. It backs up exactly what you said. If you compare Gigi with his son, George Grossmith III, um, George Grossmith III, is, is, he has one foot in the film world already. You know, he did, he did some films. Um, and the this little book is is packed with images we, we would find totally familiar. You know the um, um, the interest in celebrities' private lives. Um, what sport do they play? Uh, you know, here's George the Third playing golf with such and such a star, and it's in that book. And that book's only I don't know I don't know what date it is without checking, but it's not so long after George's death in 1912, you know. Um, so in George, in Gigi's world, it was much easier, I think, to keep up the, um, the standard image of the stage comic and make everything you do entertaining, every little movement, every little facial movement and so on. Whereas in, in his son's world, uh, it was the razzle-dazzle on the surface. You know, you were dressing up all the time. You were plastered in uh, in makeup and you were you were expected to be on, as modern celebrities must be, I assume. Uh, you know, you, you're, you're on camera all the time. Much more show business. 
Yeah, that's right. More showbiz. Yeah, I mean, okay, Gigi was a celebrity. He was uh, certainly once he was recognised on the train and he was embarrassed. <laughs> but but George the Third absolutely lapped it up. You know, he was a bit like Douglas Fairbanks. He was. You could compare him to that the early Hollywood stars, and he was only just in that world. You know, he was still a theatre person, but just going into films. I mean, one 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 occasion really sums it up. I think that his qualities. Um, and when I first read about this um, this particular scene, I didn't know that um, Edward the Seventh's wife Alexandra was deaf, partially deaf, um, but. When George was once doing one of his little recitals and entertainments to the the wealthy, the West End wealthy set that he he had all these contacts, um, Princess Alexandra was there. And um, when I first read about this, it was written without the writer wasn't having to explain that she was deaf, and he just simply wrote that she moved closer to the piano, and uh, George, you know, was was. Uh, she loved listening to George and she joined in, she laughed at his humour so on. And, and then later on I realised that she was partially deaf and um, you know that he obviously would have known this and um, he'd actually arranged it, you know, he knew it was coming, he knew that she wouldn't hear him if she sat where she was so, so he set it all up, you know, very thoughtfully um, and everybody uh, had that Wherever he was entertaining, there was this family feeling. You know, mm. I'm 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 not a celebrity. I'm a bloke playing the piano to you. Um, we're all going to enjoy this together. I think this is why he was so glad. I mean, he must have been exhausted, but he was he, when he when he did stop with Gilbert and Sullivan and went back to his piano entertaining. You'd have thought that maybe he would ease off a bit, but no. <laughs> Um, in in the other the biography written before my biography, um, which was um, is it just called George Grossmith? Oh, it's just called George Grossmith by Tony Joseph, and Tony Joseph, um, you know, tells this gives this account of of George's um, George's gigs, uh, you know, after in the what would it be the mid early to mid eighteen nineties. And, you know, he has a full week, he goes right through Scotland um, on the train and he's got he's got a gig every night somewhere or other, you know, from the lowlands up to Aberdeen. And um, somewhere in the middle of it all, he goes and entertains the Queen at Balmoral. Uh, <laughs> that was a lovely story about him getting the letter saying, from Balmoral saying, we can put you up for the night, but you'll miss your train if you stay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and you've got a gig tomorrow, so you know you you'd best not. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he and he performed late, didn't he? Mm. On that occasion, he had this mysterious chap who went with him. Um, we don't know anything about him, but in fact, there were two people who used to travel with him at various times. Um, just carry the bags, I suppose, uh, just to stop him getting lonely. We know nothing at all about them. We know their names. Uh, but um, no, you know, the end of the long day, playing here, playing there. Um, as far as I know, he never used a, a wagon lee. You know, he just, um, it's just like a short stop. There, we'll do that tonight. Then 
20 miles down the road, we'll do another tomorrow. And he, he had a right to ease off a bit by that time, but he didn't. Yeah, and, the, and he wasn't afraid to call in favours either, was he? I like the story in, in your book about Henry Irving being oh, yeah. summoned from, almost from his <laughs> deathbed <laughs> to attend yes. a concert that George was giving just to boost the ticket sales. <laughs> but do you know yeah. that the thing that I really liked about that, that I value, yeah. learn something new every day, Bram yeah. Stoker, although mm. your neck of the woods, Grimsby, <laughs> the yeah. author of Dracula, was yeah. Henry Irving's manager. Who knew? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, I think they I think they would have, would have got on very well. And, of course, again, there's another connection because um, <clears throat> Henry Irving's son was a, was a true crime fanatic like me. And so, um, uh, again, you know, he would have had lots to talk about with George. But George had actually, in his crime reporting days, he'd met some serious level villains, um, including uh, IRA, sorry, not IRA, Fenian uh, bombers. Uh, So, you know, uh, young Henry Irving must have been very interested in meeting George, but not for the stage. He wrote as H.B. Irving, if people want to look up his books, uh, Henry Irving's son. Also an actor, of course, but he but he, he was he was a true crime writer as well. And uh, H B Irving, yeah, I recommend his his sure. books. He writes about France as well, which is much much less known, isn't it? You know, French crime mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he could call in. There was a circle. There was a circle around his family. Um, they were always making friends. They were always making new friends, particularly when his dad was alive. And then there was a wider circle, which you'll know more about than I do. The way that um, you know the way that these things work in theatrical circles, which I I can only guess at. Has everybody got a massive circle of contacts all the time, or are they little subcultures? You know, yeah. So would George have had both? Do you think? Do you think he would have had like a kind of a an inner circle under? A... I would think so because I think you everyone has they're real friends and everyone has a little black book of the network of people that you've worked with before who you can call up um but you're not necessarily going to go to the pub with them every week and and in in theater i'm sure there are people listening to this who will disagree with me but it's like many jobs um but it's more concentrated so because you're working with people in very close proximity usually for quite um, a concentrated period of time. So you'll become best friends for about a month and then you will get different jobs somewhere else and you don't see each other for 10 years, but you pick up where you left off. So, you know, it's, it, it's quite a different thing. But in the, uh, somewhere along the way, you pick up good mates from all the jobs that you've done. Yes, so yeah, and, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, and I, yeah. I would think that, you know, it, it must have been the same then in those days. And, of course, you don't uh, want to so. be seen at everyone else's parties, wouldn't you? Because it's all called publicity and PR. Exactly, exactly. Because mm. I remember I was always wondering how he found the time. You know, did, did he ever sleep? Because <laughs> uh, because all that, what, what I was just saying about the itinerary when he was, when he was on the move, <clears throat> you, you know, you think of his wife, don't you? And, uh, mm. uh, you know, who, where was the family man? Well, he, he was a wonderful family man, as his dad had been. But um, I don't think she saw, they saw much of him for a lot of the time. But the image you have um, from what we have of, of his personal life, particularly from uh, 
magazines like The Strand and The Idler uh, in the 1890s, where they were really into, well, they used the word celebrity, that's right. The Strand actually used, um, has a series called The um, Portraits of Celebrities. And when The Strand went to see, um, as The Idler as well, when they went to see him at home, you know, you, you, you have the impression, there are photographs as well, by the way, quite rare photographs uh, of his wife and, say, for example, the study where he worked. I only know one image of that. And um, I think you're dead right about the circle of close friends. I think he would he would be well known to the Connie Grains and all the people that he, he, he'd known regularly and so on. But um, he could, yeah, he could call on Henry Irving. Your description was very accurate, I think. You know, he could. he probably knew lots of very famous people, but they were probably only... Um, very, very occasional meetings. He was pretty close to Irving, though, I have to say. They did spend a lot of time together. And Irving features and in Diary of a Nobody as well, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think... he gets a mention. We haven't talked about that, have we? Do you want, yeah. do, do you want to talk about the diary? I'm just, yeah, uh, the, the thing I'd most say about the Diary of a Nobody that's interesting is that it was done by a provincial publisher called Arrowsmith, you know. And he was, this man, Arrowsmith, he was um, from Bristol. And... Uh, Obviously, he'd seen um, it in it had been in Punch, so an awful lot of people knew about it from Punch. Um, but Arrowsmith somehow, and there's very little on record about this, so you have to just speculate how he signed up his people, how he got people like George, because he also published Three Men in a Boat. Well, do you know? I I knew that, um, or I discovered that, and the. The little coincidence here, because there's a little coincidence in everywhere of life, isn't there? Um, and the the lovely Tim Shaw, who adapted Diary of a Nobody, um, which is the version that we, we're using for our audio drama, he did that because he wanted to do something that was similar to the one-man show of three men in a boat that he had seen with Rodney Buse. Right. So ah, there you go. There's a little connection yeah. there. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, he was really enterprising, wasn't he? He deserved to do well, didn't he, Mr. Arrowsmith? Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there's when it comes to the diary, there's, there's lots and lots of things about it. Some scholars have been to work on it and so on and so on. As someday it may happen that a victim must be found, I've got a little list, I've got a little list of society offenders who might well be underground, who never would be missed. Who never would be missed. There's the pestilential mutancies who write for autographs. Or people who have flabby hands and irritating laughs. Or children who are up in date and bore you with them flat. Or persons smoking cigarettes and them that use his crack. And also persons who want spoiling tater takes insist. They none of them be missed. They none of them be missed. It's not a mobilist. It's not a mobilist. And I'm not a baby. I was just checking the other day, knowing that we were going to talk about Gigi today. I was looking at all the editions over the years. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Um, right from the folio ones, for instance, you know, the really beautiful, um, uh, what would it be, 1970s, I think? There's like a big yellow-covered edition by folio, right down to the the cheapest throwaway things, you know, sub, sub penguin, um, smaller presses, absolutely hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of editions. Uh, and then all the spin-off ideas. Um, and in fact, isn't, hasn't there been one recently? Hasn't somebody recently done looping? 
Uh, I think I just saw yeah. that in passing. Yeah. Yeah, mm. and there was the diary of Mrs. Pooter that keeps. Oh, Mrs. Yes, mm. of course there was. That's right. It just goes on and on. Because I mean, I don't think he quite realised, did he, what a superb idea it was. Uh, you know, it's just such a simple thing. Uh, but that format, you know, as with Adrian Mole and um, uh, the sort of uh, popularizations of, um, you know, uh, I don't know what Bridget Jones comes to mind. Um, it's a simple format, but it gives you um, all that flexibility, doesn't it, to shift over time, past, present, and yeah. It also gives you, well, it gives a really good insight into social history as well. Which Ooh, you know, people just, are really yeah. interested in yeah. how people used to live. Yeah, you know, that's right. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and and this is fabulous. I know we, we've in the the drama um, in the book. He talks about um, I can't remember if it's comings or goings and the scraper. <laughs> and yeah. we've actually added yeah. in it's a boot scraper because right. people might not know that now. But no, you know, they probably don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I used to right, outside my back door. <laughs> yeah. You still see them on the Antiques Roadshow sometimes, mm. don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's true, is that? I mean, I, I remember being stunned that they had a servant. Yeah. Well, surely, surely they've not got a servant. Yeah. Everybody but, did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then obviously the, um, you know, we the, the, there's something very modern, isn't there, about the all the aspirations of, of Mr. Pooter. Well, it's also universal as well, probably, and probably timeless as well, that... Um, you know what's gonna? If I could just be promoted, life would be so different, and I could, I could, I could go to the Lord Mayor's ball, perhaps. You know? <laughs> That's the greatest thing. All those wonderful Dickensian names as well. That oh yeah, you know, yeah. They don't have to open their mouths. You just know no. by their name what they look like and what they <laughs> yeah. do for a living. The Absolutely. And whatever. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think the thing was that um, George obviously. Um, needed his, his brother's artistic ability didn't he and um tony joseph talks about the um uh, which I, I never did but he, there's an exhaustive list in tony joseph's book of all the similarities between mr pooter and Gigi, which of course you would guess at wouldn't you even if you didn't mm. do a check you'd think well yeah there's lots of george in mr pooter but tony joseph lists about 30 um <laughs> close similarities <laughs> from their lives but i mean you would as a writer you would you would use that though particularly if you were experienced in um london suburban middle class life as george was you know it was all there to use wasn't it oh it's just i mean his dad obviously the presence of his dad is there the, the man whose parties open to all his pals you know and uh, bringing bringing the kids like the, i mean their parties clearly lasted almost through the night sometimes um, Mr. Uh, George the First's parties, um, you know, you sort of reading between the lines, you're thinking, well, the kids never seem to have gone to bed. <clears throat> uh, what did he care? He was, <laughs> he was still drinking wine and telling anecdotes, you know, Gigi, uh, George the First. So, I mean, that's the world he came from. And I think in Mr. Pooter, the re one reason, one of the many reasons for its success is that um, the, the little, little worries that nag at him all the time, um, they're essentially the same as now. Mm. And they, they probably always were. Um, the only difference being that he has to um, he has to negotiate much more face-to-face -face than perhaps we do. He couldn't ring up and get a delivery, could he, from 
from anywhere. He, he had to negotiate with the local butcher or baker. And that was one of his biggest problems. <laughs> you know, um, so the other kind of undercurrent I always felt as well was, you know, the um, what happens to the world when you suddenly have this huge expansion of pen pushers that was going on then, you know, the, uh, the, the new suburbs and all those, all those commuters. Um, I remember when some time ago when I was an English teacher uh, and whenever we used to read short stories, I used to say, look, think about this. The, why did the short story emerge? You know, and one of the social history elements is of course, you needed a 20 minute read. For your commute. When you, yes. And if you had thousands and thousands more commuters, you had a wonderful market for a short story in the daily paper. And I think it's the same with uh, with Diary of Nobody, really, that um, it's a short book. You can dip into it. Um, it's It doesn't demand anything from you, uh, intellectually particularly, but you only have to read half a dozen pages, and it sets you thinking about, yourself and your own you know how much booster is there in me so he really is a universal it's character it's, isn't he i tell you what I, I find really interesting um and i i only learned this from your book so thank you um but reading diary of a nobody which i think it was evelyn war that was the funniest book of all time um mm. i actually find elements of it quite sad um and you can't help but feel sorry the pathetic creature that sometimes Pooter comes across as, yeah, even though he's that's true, you know. But I was amazed that George would have been that sensitive and be able to be that clever in his writing when, as you tell me, he got a laugh out of the death of Jack Point in oh, yeah. the Yeoman yeah. Regard, which oh, exactly. is, is one of my favorite in Gilbert and Sullivan's, and yeah. it's such a tragic comedy character it is yeah. the fool to you know in king lear and yeah. the whole thing you know he falls insensible at their feet and that's it and apparently george managed to get a laugh out of that every yes night. that's right yes there was a bit of a debate about that wasn't there um on the in the more recent one i saw a production probably about three years ago and you do you wait for, <laughs> you wait for that is it oh are they going to get a laugh or not uh, the one i saw they didn't no they didn't. But yeah, that, I mean that's that's a great point because because there is a lot of like we were saying earlier about the physicality. There's also the sort of link in um, you know performance itself and the um, projection, if you like, the projection uh, of of the humour from a person. And yeah, you certainly Jack Point has that, doesn't it? That the other ones, the other patter <coughs> songs will not have that character has um, probably. A fair amount of George uh, in the in the social position. Oh, a private cuckoo is a light-hearted loon if you listen to popular rumor. From the morning till night, he's so joyous and bright, and he bubbles with wit and good humor. He's a quaking, so tense, and prone to the inversions of people for giving transgression. There are one or two fools that all family fools must observe if they love their profession. There are one or two fools, half a dozen maybe, that all family fools have got everything made. I tell you what, though, I'm just glad he. It's terrific that he wrote 
something that became a classic as well because he um he it, the the transience of it all really hits you in the guts you know in the old solar plexus when you think of um you know the massive celebrity becoming an anonymous person in a bath chair in Folkestone um it, it's so poignant you know well, to and think it's the of book that. that keeps his name alive isn't it Ex- exactly I was going to say we've got the classic so so many more people will I mean, I don't know whether it's studied in schools or anything like that, but um, I would like to think that young people still read it because it makes them think about, um, you know, families and uh, how we live together. Um, it, will, it will be strange to them, won't it? The things like The Servant will be very strange to younger readers, I think. They must be thinking, well, he's not rich. Why has he got a servant? Uh, that really does help. <laughs> That really opens up Victorian uh, society, doesn't it? And George's end, um, he I don't think he was one of the people, like most of the people that I've been talking about in this series, who mm. end a very, in a sorry, poverty-stricken way, having reached the great heights, they lose all their money or whatever. He had quite a comfortable ending, didn't he? Mm. He did. He did. Um you can actually find, if you go to the old newspaper searches, you know, the, um, what's it called, the British British newspapers, the one that goes to 1950 on the British Library database. So just from home, you can, you if you get the um, local paper reports, there is actually a listing of, um, of, of the effects, you know, of what was left in his will and all the things, the valuable things he owned. It's there in the press for us to read. And I think I did reproduce some of it in the book, but he did. He he was he was um, he was a canny lad, as they would say in in Jolly Land. He he did know how to um, you know how to survive and how to look after the people that he needed to look after. He had that mentality. I think again from his father, because his father knew he had to survive and feed the family. Going right back to Reading before they moved to London. Um, you know, he, he had to keep the money coming in and he was doing something that you couldn't guarantee would have a full house. And then, of course, George himself on some occasions found a, only a, a half full house. You know, when he <laughs> uh, sometimes he was, there wasn't any World Cup football or anything, but he, he did occasionally find himself um, appearing at some theatre when, you know, there was, a, there was a big wedding going on or a Lord Mayor's Ball or God knows what. And there were half empty houses, even though he was uh, a celebrity, you know. So, so I think he knew the uncertainties of the artistic life, but he'd made an absolute packet with his um, his last um, recital tours. They were really lucrative. So I think he'd, you know, I think he'd stashed a lot away. So he could retire thinking. in comfort. Yeah, and he did. I mean, he could afford the nursing support that he needed. And um, and uh, it is you know the the place he did uh, spend his last few years in after Rosa had died. He only had a few years, but he did um, you know he did his best to still be involved. You know he did um, he would make appearances even in his last years. He he did things like judge judge singing competitions or things like that. You know, so he he didn't just suddenly retreat and become an invalid he did right up to the last he was doing his best the Folkestone papers are full of 
little reports about him, you know, in those last six years or so. So, um, yeah, he's um, he, he's one of those people that you write about who actually makes you feel better, makes you feel that life actually uh, can be enriched by creative people. And he's one of the best examples of that that I've ever come across. Um, I'm sure he had some melancholy moments. I'm sure he was down, not always up. Um, I don't necessarily think he needed drugs to feel high. I think he was. I think he was high on his own sense of the world and how he found uh, something ridiculous, but but warmly ridiculous in human behaviour. And I, I think he brought all that to his to his comic parts. Um, probably not as much as the the comics of the stage at the time. The people who really, you know, the famous uh, musical people who really were brilliant at human observation if you if you read about them but he had something of that quality i think he could have survived in a musical you know he could have he could have gone gone to that without being obscene or anything you think he would have made the working man laugh as well as princess alexandra so absolutely remarkable man what what a lovely tribute oh i can't say any more than that oh, lovely <laughs> lovely lovely way to end a podcast so Thank you ever so much, Stephen. You've been an absolute star today. Well, thank um, you for asking me. That is my my pleasure. Um, and just so that we, we get it right, the book is A Victorian Somebody, The Life of George Rose Smith by Stephen Wade. Yes. Um, so let's uh, let's hope that we, we get lots of sales of that. And uh, I've been making copious notes as you've been talking about various other bits and pieces. So I shall make sure that all of that's on the, the show notes as well. So people who want to do a bit more reading and uh, an investigation can find out and uh, hopefully get to like George as, as much as you and I do. Let's hope so. Thank okay. you for asking me. Thank you very much. My name is John Wellington Wells. I'm a dealer in magic and spells. In blessings and curses, never built purses in prophecies, witches and nails. If you want a problem to make tracks, if you're built for a chapel in wax, you'd better look in on the resident gin number 70 Simmery Axe. With a first-rate assortment of magic, and for raising a posthumous shade, with effects that are comic or tragic, there's no cheaper house in the trade. Love filters with quantities of it, and the knowledge if anyone burns. We're keeping a very small profit, a profit who brings us our bounded returns. Or he can prophesy and with a wind promise I peace and security into futurity Sum up your history, clear up a mystery Human proclivity, foreign activity, foreign activity Shares on circular, foggy spectacular Tentacle, tragical, mirror, so magical Facts, astronomical, solemn or comical And if you want to make the reduction Taking a proxy, oh! If anyone anything lacks You'll find them already in stacks If you only look in on the resident In number 70, Simaria Thank you for listening to famous people you've never heard of. If you've enjoyed this week's podcast and would like to find out more, do take a look at the show notes where you'll find further information and reading material, as well as a transcription of today's episode. If you like what we do and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash theatre. Or, if you prefer to keep us going with a caffeine fix, you can do so at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash bluefiretheatre. 
We really appreciate any support you can give to help keep the show on the road. And we'd also love it if you give the show a rate and a review. It really helps us to remain visible out there. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, where we'd love to see you.